Good afternoon. Good afternoon and welcome. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, just talking with Charlie, I'm thrilled to see so many of familiar faces, and for many of you, the first time in two years. So we're, yes, that's worth, that's worth some cheers. But I know why you're here, and he's sitting next to me. <laughs> Uh, my name is Jamie Boskett. I have the, the distinct privilege of serving now as the President and CEO of the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. And uh, again, we're just thrilled to have you this afternoon and for this very special talk. Uh, today's lecture is part of, as you know, an ongoing series of, of banner lectures that are endowed by our former trustee, Ann Whirl, and done so in honor of this wonderful man seated next to me. So it's all coming together for yeah. today's lecture. Uh, I hope that, and for many of you, when you came in, you got a peek of the new Commonwealth Hall. Yeah. Right? What do you think? Wow. Isn't it something? <laughs> there is a, an incredible amount of activity and transformation happening right now, and I'm, I'm just proud to say that we're nearing the finish line. Uh, this has been an additive process, it, adding to all of the great work of previous generations of leadership here to, to continue this effort of making this museum the state history museum that Virginia needs and that all Virginians deserve. We have announced, and so I hope it's on your radar, that our member preview will be taking place on May 11th. Uh, so really, eight weeks away. So if you <laughs> see, you notice there's almost no VMHC staff in the audience because they're all scurrying uh, working so hard as they have for some time now to wrap up this incredible project. This is, uh, by any measure, one of the most complicated and far-reaching renovations we've ever attempted, uh, touching almost two-thirds of this quarter-million-square-foot complex. Uh, so it's incredible. So May 11th, please make sure that's on your schedule. Um, and then, of course, immediately following that, on May 14th, will be our public grand reopening. So if you can't be here for the preview, please do come when we swing our doors open to the public writ large. A few other quick announcements before we start. Uh, March 18th, that's this Friday. March 18th, in partnership with the John Marshall Center for Constitutional History and Civics, we'll be hosting the Yale Law Professor Akil Reed Amar for a talk on his new book, The Words That Made Us, America's Constitutional Convention, 1760-1840, an incredible <coughs> scholar and really worth another visit this week. That is noon uh, this Friday. On March 24th at noon, as part of the same series, we'll be hosting historian Carl Lounsberg, uh, Lounsbury, right? Yeah. yeah, sorry, there's a typo there, uh, for a talk on his new book, The Material World of Air Hall. Uh, you probably have heard that reference before, an incredible historic site that is now owned and occupied by a former trustee of the Historical Society, uh, Bali Baldwin. And so it's a remarkable journey through this house that not only has been continuously occupied by the same family that built it, but is populated with all the remarkable things that they've collected over, uh, over the, the years. So a, a wonderful lecture to join on the 24th at noon. Uh, lastly, and you should, seeing all the members in the audience here, you should have received the invitation in the mail for April 20th. On April 20th, we'll have our annual Christian lecture entirely in person again here in the Robbins Family Forum, and we'll have Dr. Jim Horn from Historic Jamestown just down the road for a talk on his newest book, A Brave and Cunning Prince. 
Uh, so please do mark your calendar, some really exciting uh, programming upcoming. So on to today's, uh, today's focus. The late Southern writer John Edgerton observed that there are three kinds of history. And this is, if you've seen uh, the new book, uh, is right inside the jacket. Three kinds of history, what actually happened, what we were told happened, and what finally came, we, we finally came to believe happened. Uh, it is that third type, what finally we came to believe, that is the focus uh, that Charlie so skillfully addresses in his newest book, uh, which, uh, again, I hope that you'll purchase a copy and have signed after we're finished today. Dr. Bryan challenges many of the assumptions about the past that his generation was taught in schools some 60 years ago. Once simplistic stories have become more complex, but at the same time, and I think as Charlie so aptly points out, have become more compelling and more provocative the more we know about the past. I doubt there's anyone here that, that doesn't know him, but I think just for the record and for anyone who's joining us online, I'll just note that my friend, Dr. Charles F. Bryan Jr., is a noted historian who spent most of his career in the museum field. For all of us here at the VMHC, we know him best as the former president and CEO, a position that he held for 20 years. While occupying the, uh, this busy role, somehow Charlie, and I'm not sure how, now having tried to fill your shoes, he found time to write essays for the RTD, starting in the 1990s. <clears throat> a selection of these contributions were then, of course, published in Imperfect Past, A History in a New Light, the first edition, and then, of course, what we're here to talk about today is volume two of that same series. And we're pleased, really, to be the launch, official launch event, right, Wayne, of this wonderful book. So let's make a mark and, and, and purchase those copies afterwards. Thanks. It occurs to me that in, in writing these two books and the essays that form them, takes an incredible amount of self-awareness and thoughtful, truthful history. The same, you might say, it takes for an institution like this to do its job well. So it was a reminder to me when uh, spending time uh, originally with the first version, but mo most recently with his newest volume, why Charlie was so remarkably successful here. That he has that in such a degree, and he conveyed that to this institution. And we, we today work to carry on that legacy. This collection of, of essays, 80, in each book are a treasure. They really are a treasure. Uh, not just for the sound history that's presented, but what I felt, and, and I said this to Charlie, and he didn't take objection to it, as the, the personal touch. Charlie helps us, through his own self-awareness, humility, realize that it's okay, it's normal even, to reflect differently on the past as we move along. As we learn more details, as we have more perspective and experience that's brought only by time, that sensibility that what we once know, once knew, may not always be the case. And so I, I, I thought that was just incredibly uh, important. I want to just read one small excerpt. Um, and there's a couple of these I'd like to share today as we go through. And this is um, Charlie speaking in the introduction of the book. As I thumb through all these books, speaking of his childhood textbooks, reading certain passages and looking at the pictures, I began to realize that I have had an abiding love for history since the earliest days of my youth. But when I examined them more closely, I began to understand how incomplete and one-sided they were, 
something I was truly blind to when I read them some 60 years ago. And that really is, I think, at the heart what this book is all about. So I have a series of questions that I'd like to ask Charlie, and we're going to save some time at the end for all of you to ask yours. But I think first and foremost, Charlie, you're, you're seeing a room of people both here and people online that love you and care about you, and we're thrilled to see you on the stage. Yeah. How are you feeling? How are things? I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. <laughs> but I've been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease 18 years now. But thanks to a wonderful wife, Cammie, uh, we deal with it uh, day to day. It's good days and bad days. Fortunately, this is a great day. This is a great day. And uh, look forward to it. Um, wonderful. Well, we are thrilled. So I want to jump back now and start these questions with the... Wait a minute. Sorry, go ahead. One thing. I want to brag on this man and his <laughs> staff for what they have done to, with this institution. Jamie, you've done a magnificent job, and your staff has obviously found the leader they need. And congratulations. Thank you very much. Now, if we can get through these next eight weeks. The test is right now, so let's see how, if he says the same thing in eight weeks. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to begin back with the same notion that I read from the inside jacket cover in a principle that I think guides this book uh, with the historian uh, John Edgerton. Again, there are essentially three kinds of history, what actually happened, what we are told happened, and what we finally come to believe happened. Charlie, in, the, in this day and age, in a time of of moving monuments and changing names. Uh, how would you say this premise relates to the Civil War here in Virginia? Well, I think it relates very well. Uh, I grew up in Tennessee, but uh, was very interested in the war in, Virgi in Virginia. And it's one of the reasons I went to VMI, the Civil War affected me that way. But I grew up in a small southern town in which um, um, had a small black population but it was also a small town that blacks could not check out books from the public library. They could not um, vote or hold office. And I didn't think about that. I, I was blind to that. I wrote an essay in the first volume called, um, I Once Was Blind, and I was blind to that. It wasn't until later in life that I began to read other sides of the story. So, um, some of you may remember um, a columnist for the Washington Post named Carl Rowan. He also served as ambassador to Denmark. Well, I found his autobiography and I started reading it. Come to find out, he'd grown up in the same town I did. And I'd never heard of him when I was young. And I was amazed at that. And his, I, I have such fond memories of growing up in that town and very nostalgic, but his memories were not the same as mine. And he, one of the first things he did was to, uh, to get out of town so, <laughs> and go on to a great career himself. But that's a, a, a roundabout way of saying that um, I heard, I read history that was definitely one-sided and um, it affected my thinking. And it wasn't until I became uh, somewhat uh, heav heavily involved in history that I began to see that there were other sides to the story as you point out. Um, I cite in the book, the, um, how many of you remember landmark books? Yeah. <laughs> landmark books were um, designed for middle schoolers. And I 
found a collection up in our attic and I started going through. I mean, it's definitely one-sided that America was a, a land of white people and um, they had a noble past to them. And uh, it was definitely one-sided. And when I read them as kids, I loved them. But as an adult, I began to raise my eyebrows at what they said and how they were interpreted. So uh, I, that's a roundabout way of answering your question. Well, I, no, but it is an answer. And I, again, I think that's why books like this and work from historians that we can trust, like Charlie, is so important. Because it is okay to change our understanding of the past when we know more. It's an, I think it's an expectation of being a good citizen to do that. And so you, you've helped us in that, in this, yeah. in this Let me piece. mention one other thing. Uh, things become anachronistic. And uh, for example, the Confederate battle flag. Cammy and I were in Germany a few years ago and uh, there was a rally of skinheads and they had Nazi flags and Confederate flags. And also, I remember, I don't know if you know this, the Boy Scouts salute until the early 1930s was this. And with the rise of Hitler, it became suddenly anachronistic and went to this. So our perception of the past can change with time as circumstances change. And that's okay. Yeah. That's okay. Uh, on a similar vein, uh, the word hero is applied to people for a variety of reasons. Sometimes even when a person really doesn't deserve such a recognition. Yeah. Uh, sometimes we only know that in hindsight. Uh, who are some heroes in this volume? Because you do speak to several. And why do you think that label truly applies? Well, I think it's misused a lot. If you're a professional football player, you become a hero, and I'm not sure they deserve that. And people, and one thing that really bothers me, and I've served in the Army, was anyone who's in uniform is a hero. And I think most of us who served in uniform do not regard ourselves as heroes simply because we served. It was expected of us, and we did it. But one person who is a real hero is a guy to concentrate on, Bobby Ray. And he's this first essay in there. I went to high school with Bobby. He was tall, gangly, played tr trombone in the school band, would basically be regarded today as a band geek. And uh, he, but he was very bright. He went to the University of Tennessee on scholarship and he, he um, partied and got, he eventually got kicked out of school. This was in 1967. And I ran into his mother when I was home on furlough from VMI. And she said, we're so excited. Bobby got in the Navy and he won't have to go fight. Well, Bobby joined the Navy and then he decided he wanted to be a corpsman, which is one of the most dangerous jobs. And he volunteered for service in Vietnam. He was awarded the Medal of Honor posthumously for giving his life as saving other, uh, saving Marines. But he definitely is a, a hero, and God forbid that anyone else has to experience what he did. But I wanted him to be recognized, and he is certainly someone that you, can, you can't tell by his cover how, what he was willing to do. Other heroes in my book, um, there are several that I talk about. It's particularly when it comes to presidents, um, wartime presidents, in a sense they do they make decisions that uh, they'd rather not have to make, but the, the decisions they make are clearly good of the right ones. Uh, I think of wartime presidents. Most, most presidents have proven their worth and their greatness during wars. It's unfortunate. Abraham Lincoln, for example, was a, 
Um, he's one of my heroes. And when I was a young boy, I wouldn't, wouldn't have dared have a picture of Abraham. <laughs> I had a picture of Robert E. Lee on my wall. And uh, also Franklin D. Roosevelt was a great wartime president. We've had some that were pretty bad. James Madison was a terrible wartime president. But um, those are some of my heroes. You mentioned Robert E. Lee, and yeah. we'll, we'll sort of touch on similar topics throughout, but one of the essays in your newest piece that I found particularly interesting and, and maybe um, strangely amusing was the essay that talks about the naming of military forts. Um, and, and in fact, I'm going to reference a, a line here. <laughs> this is the last paragraph of that essay. Uh, and you're referencing the end of the war. You say, within years, many of the people who led the South to succession, secession excuse me, in 1861 and who played important roles in the Confederate war effort uh, held prominent positions post-war. Some even had army forts named after them, only in America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there were some pretty lousy Confederate generals <laughs> that uh, Fort, Fort Bragg and... Fort Polk, Louisiana, were, they were terrible generals. But for, for some reason, they got their name attached to a fort. There's a commission now that is studying renaming those forts. But this commission came after you wrote oh, yeah, this, yeah. right? So Charlie was thinking yeah, about yeah. this because it's been around for a long time. And now there is something happening. But um, why? tell us a more about where this comes from. How are all these forts in the well, South? Would you believe it's politics? Oh, no. <laughs> You notice that these appeared in um, southern states, and they had powerful senators who were um, in a position when they were building these forts to have them named after southern generals. And it's um, why they chose Bragg over some other North Carolina or somebody else, I don't know, but it, it was those powerful senators on the Senate for, uh, and House Arms Committee that made sure that happened. It is, it's, it is sort of remarkable, it's similar to forts being named as part of installations of the United States military yeah. being named after generals who fought against the military. It just at its base level is, is really something. It's just like having Robert E. Lee for 111 years in his Confederate uniform in the United States Capitol. That's a pretty bold move. You look at the post-Civil War experience, the Confederacy, the American South is the only major country that has lost a war, yet allowed to celebrate it, when you think about it. Uh, it didn't happen after post-war post France. Um, other countries that have fought civil wars, they, they, the losing side paid a huge price for it. But in the case of the Confederacy, no major leaders were assassinated, I mean, were executed. No, um, none of the figures uh, had to give up property, with one exception, that's the Lee family where they surrendered Arlington to the federal government. But the South was let off relatively easy compared to other, what you see yeah. in other post-Civil War nations. Incredible yeah. history. Uh, historians, you mentioned presidents and wartime presidents. Historians usually have given high marks to presidents who are successful when confronted with crises. So I wanna drill down to this topic just a little bit more. Crises that varied in degrees of seriousness. Yeah. If you would, Charlie, share with us just a few stories of presidents who would you, who would, you put, would put in this successful category, and why did they succeed? Well, they were successful. 
Um, of course, our first president, George Washington, which is, I th he's up there among the top three is in terms of his importance. He was the perfect man for the job. He was, um, and it bothers me that he was criticized for being a slave holder, but he was a great president because he had um, experience in the war in terms of running an army and having to deal with um, congressional uh, representatives. He was a shrewd politician to begin with, and he faced any number of crises, including an internal crisis, the Whiskey Rebellion, which he put down. So he, the very first president, was willing to take that risk and, and use the office to its best ability. Um, next would probably be, well, I have mixed feelings about this. I spent three years at the Hermitage under Andrew Jackson um, and uh, with uh, his home. And I was uh, one of those who said he was a great president and he certainly used his powers very effectively. But now scholars look at him in a different light. He um, was not very kind to the American Indian. And there were plenty of examples that were not admirable. But the, the two greatest wartime presidents were Abraham Lincoln and um, uh, Franklin Roosevelt. And they both stretched the Constitution to win the war, to say the least. But in some ways, thank God they did. And um, they're, they're good examples of leadership. One of the best books I've read in a long time is Doris Kearns Goodwin's Team of Rivals, which anybody should read. It is a wonderful story of how you convert your enemies into friends. And to me, that's a perfect example of a strong president. It's interesting. What I'm hearing from you is that these are presidents that didn't just fill the job description, they rose to an occasion, right? right. They went above and beyond. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Chester A. Arthur didn't have that advantage. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and you look at what's in the news every day right now, right? We're seeing an international president who seems to be in the moment rising to an occasion. Um, so it's, it's interesting to see that play out. Well, th these are unusual times to say the least. We've had, um, had a major political crisis and uh, where your opponent is your enemy, not just an opponent. Then we've dealt with a pandemic, a terrible pandemic, now a possibility of war. And I cannot think of many periods in Americans, uh, the American experience that had back-to-back um, -back crises like that. Right. Um, let's keep on that same vein for a second. Uh, you, you write about, and this is closer to my um, area of historical interest, you, you write about the election of 1824. It's one of the most <laughs> controversial in American history where, as, as you may recall, Andrew Jackson uh, ends up losing to John Quincy Adams in what the, the former here called a corrupt bargain. Sounds familiar to me. Yeah. Tell us more, Charlie. <laughs> 1824, Andrew Jackson was a military hero. He won several wars against the... Indians and American Indians in the Deep South. And then he won the Battle of New Orleans over overwhelming odds. And he was a true national hero. And supporters of him talked to him about running for the presidency. He did in 1824. And his chief opponent was Henry Clay. And, um, no, no, excuse me, it was John Quincy Adams. Uh, Henry uh, Clay plays a role in this. And uh, it was a very close election. 
Henry, uh, the, so close that the vote went to Congress. And they debated and debated week after week and week. And finally, they decided that John Quincy Adams would be the new president. First thing he did was choose uh, Henry Clay as his secretary of state, who was a mortal enemy of Andrew Jackson. Jackson said, this is a corrupt bargain. And from that day on till the next election of 1828, he took on John Quincy Adams. And it was one of the nastiest presidential races of our time. Um, um, the Adams people called um, Jackson's mother a um, prostitute. And she had, um, there was no evidence of that. And then rumors got around that Jackson's wife, Rachel, who had been uh, committing adultery. Well, the Jacksonians called back and said that John Quincy Adams, when he was minister to Russia, was a pimp for the czar. <laughs> I kid you not. Well, Jackson won the election overwhelmingly. But that, there, there's no people talking about nasty elections now. That was that topped them all. <laughs> that sounds like it. So on that same vein of, of pimps for the czar and, and, and <laughs> mothers who are prostitutes, there's a lot of talk of fake news and big lies today. Yeah. Has lying by public officials become so common that the American citizenry is almost numb to it? Um, share with us uh, you know, some examples, if you would, both little or big, and, and tell us, how, does, how is this played out? How does it come back to haunt us as Americans? Well, it's, um, telling the truth has been a problem ever since there's been an American republic. As a matter of fact, in the time of Jefferson, when Jefferson was president, even beforehand, certain sides, the uh, Democratic Republicans or the Whigs, they bought their own newspaper. And they owned the newspapers and they put the content that went in. And it was libelous. It led to a duel with Alexander Hamilton getting killed. So it was not unusual at that time. And there's never really been a period in which uh, lying was not... Um, accepted. But to me, it's gotten outright blatant. And uh, the, the many politicians outright lie. And uh, it's, um, it's very discouraging to me. You have um, another note in here that I wanted to, but this is in the essay called The Big Lie. Yeah. And boy, if this doesn't strike home what you've just said here. Um, the Nazi propaganda minister supposedly said, quote, if you tell a lie big enough and keep repeating it, people will eventually come to believe it. It becomes vitally important for the state to use all its powers to repress dissent, for the truth is the mortal enemy of the lie, and the truth is the greatest enemy of the state. Yeah, it is. We see examples of that. We're seeing it in, in Russia today. Mm -hmm. They're outright lying about the attack on their neighbor. And it's, it's not, you cannot have a civil society and a civil democracy when lying not only occurs, but it's accepted. People become immune to it. They just don't, it's up to us as elected, as, as electors to see that they do tell the truth. And some are trying to do that, but uh, it it's, can be it's discouraging. To say the least, Yeah, to say the least. You, you mentioned earlier in the challenges that face us today, you mentioned COVID. Yeah. And um, 
you know, it seems like we're not together on an occasion where it's not mentioned. Uh, but changing topics just slightly, in, in what ways has the coronavirus pandemic resembled previous pandemics? In what ways has it differed? Well, it, it, it resembles more the 1918-1919 flu epidemic or pandemic, which killed um, close to a million people. It is a percentage of the population is actually greater in, in losses than the current COVID uh, pandemic. It's um, doctors, you, you think about this, the 1918 uh, pandemic occurred only two decades after the discovery of germs. The germ theory, we found that hard to believe. The doctors didn't wash anything before surgery, didn't clean their instruments like they should have. And people died by the millions just because they were ignorant of that. So by the time of the great flu pandemic, most doctors assume that we've, we've conquered major diseases and there's nothing to worry about. And uh, they were caught with their pants down, literally. Um, the, uh, f they didn't know how to react to it. But you'll look at pictures from 1918, 1919, you'll see people wearing face masks. And in most communities, including Richmond, they were, they were not voluntary. They were, um, you had to wear them to get out in public. One thing that baffles me, and I sound like an old man that I am, um, the polio vaccine. How, how many of you got it? All of us. How many of you had parents saying, well, I don't know, I'm not going to have my child get a polio vaccine? It was a different mindset then. And they closed the pools, and we didn't have demonstrators going around saying, open, reopen the pool. It was something we did, and we, we got a big shot, and then... Um, Several months or a year later, we got the sugar cubes. And again, there was no opposition. And I, I have an essay in the first volume about the great flu pandemic. And I raised a question, if this happens, again, this is before the current what happens if we have another one of these? Will, will we be able to come together as a society to conquer it? And I say, we, we failed, we, we've won, but it's been a very difficult victory for us. And um, I'm, wonder what would happen if there's another one. We're, we're not a particularly um, agreeable public as a society. But that's the one I compare it to most of all. Do you think that a role of our, our previous topic here about the, our ability to trust government yeah. leaders is playing a factor in all this? Yes, it is. There's been a basic um, during I think the height of American unity occurred during World War II. And it's amazing what this country did to create an arsenal of democracy, and that meant everybody working together. There were some real problems during the World War II, just strikes, race riots, um, but for the most part, we, 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 we united. And um, that stayed true until about the 1960s. And when people began to, certain people began to say, that um, began to question the role of government, maybe rightfully so, and um, it's been very difficult ever since then. There is uh, a worry about this country. And people talk about what would have happened or what would happen if a certain state seceded from the Union. I, I can't imagine that. But I do worry about um, people taking it overly aggressively. But, uh, is there, you know, history tends to repeat in some version, re repeat or rhyme or however you want to, yeah. to speak of it. 
I, I'm hoping you can give us a little hope. There is a chance. What, what will it take? What will it well, take to, for this to come back around? And will there, will there need to be some specific moment or some circumstance? Well, uh, yeah. Let me, one is if we were contacted by an alien from a different planet. <laughs> but, but Candy and I, when this all started, she was much more pessimistic about the society. And I said, no, that won't happen. Um, that Congress would take, take charge and we'll be okay. I'm beginning to wonder if that's really the case. And um, it's, it's turning into a, a rural versus urban and suburban crisis. And with all the weapons we have available to us, I could see certain gangs, militia gangs, coming together and creating major problems for society. Let's hope it doesn't. One thing that there is hope, if you look at the United States in 1975, the country had had major assassinations. Richard Nixon had resigned from office. And the country was in terrible shape. But you know what saved it, in my opinion, is the American Bicentennial, which came two, two years later. And it brought the country together unlike anything else. And I can only hope that the 250th anniversary can do the same. But it, it's uh, interesting. It was a time to celebrate. That's right, and we're going to come to that. Uh, first, I have one other big topic that I think, because, and you've heard this, that uh, this theme that many of these essays from Charlie's book often come before these big moments uh, that they relate to. It's, it's, the essays have not only stood the time, test of time, but they seem very prescient in so many ways. Um, here's one that really struck me. Um, Especially here in Virginia, we've heard a lot about this lately. There's been talk about history as taught in our schools yeah. and what should be taught, how should it be taught. And I'm going to ask you to share some of your thoughts, but I'd like to read one more piece um, uh, from, your, from your book. Uh, this is a chapter called Conspiracy Theories and Fake History. Charlie writes, some people contend that there is a conspiracy by educators to emphasize the negative aspects of our past and drop mentioning anything that frames the United States positively. Why do we have to teach our students certain disturbing aspects of our nation's history, such as the lynching of African Americans or how, mistreat, how we mistreated Indians? That concerns me. So with all this conversation about what we teach in schools. I, I would love you just to elaborate, if you would, on this topic and, and what's, your, what's your advice? What's your lesson to us all? Well, this really concerns me how history is taught. You take how I was taught, I've told you about those books that I found. It was definitely one-sided. It was not, um, um, it was a positive history of the American, United States, but it was a terribly inaccurate one. I can remember in high school, that history teaching was not the top of the list in terms of academics. Now, some of you have heard this, but did you know that half of the history teachers in America in the, in the 1950s had the same first name? Coach. 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 <laughs> I had Coach Sparkman. He was a good football coach, but we could get him off the subject. And he, I made the mistake of saying, Coach, it's, I think it's pronounced Crimean War, not, not Crimean. <laughs> he jumped all over me. <laughs> I learned my lesson. So people say t history is not taught as well 
as it is in the past. I, I, I disagree. The history teachers I had were not particularly good. And I know that this institution continues to do a lot with continuing education for teachers. And it's, and it's um, much better taught. And it's frankly much more interesting. And this um, last year, you remember, was the, a lot of attention paid to the Tulsa race riot. I don't know how many people say, I've never even heard of that. It was a terrible incident or the great New York race riot, uh, draft riot of 1863. You can't ignore those parts of our history. It's not happy history, it's realistic history. And it bothers me when, when teachers can get in trouble for saying things that are accurate but not necessarily pleasant to read about. But uh, that, that does concern me. And I think it's, it's an interesting dilemma that museums face. When you do a special exhibition, how many people are going to like this or not? We, the last major exhibit we did when I was here was Lee and Grant. And uh, it was celebrating Robert E. Not, it was commemorating Robert E. Lee's birthday. And I said, we, we need to do Grant and make it a more interesting exhibit. I had some members who said, how dare you? speak of Grant in the same breath with Robert E. Lee, but we went ahead and did it. But it is a risk, and it's a risk when you have a sponsor who underwrites exhibits for money. I mean, give you money, but they want it told a certain way. You have to watch out for that. That is, you know, from his mouth, you've heard it. <laughs> I can say that. They never, they never taught, <laughs> yes, I cannot say that. They, they did not teach us this in museum school, how perilous the environment could be, the yeah. space in which institutions, particularly those that I would say with, with are reliant on private funding as we are, yeah. proudly so, the pressure that is under, we are under yeah. to do our work well. Yeah, so I agree. Just keep that in mind. <laughs> you, heard him, you heard him say it. Uh, I do want to save time for some questions, so I hope you're all preparing. And while you're preparing what you'd like to ask Charlie, um, I want to come back to the topic you just brought up, which is so relevant, and it not only involves us, but involves all of us in this room, and that is the upcoming uh, 250th anniversary of America. Uh, I'm really proud to note that the VMHC is going to play a, a very significant role. We are uh, co-chairs of the state's commission to plan how Virginia is going to mark the 250th. And, and again, just so you don't have to do the hard math, we are just over four years away. So there is no time to waste. As soon as we finish this renovation, all engines flip over to thinking about the buildup to America's 250th is, a, is a, perhaps a next great moment. Um, and, and an interesting one because it also pushes us as an institution ever closer to our 300th anniversary. Um, so. Uh, Excuse me, our 200th anniversary, our third century. I get yeah. those things uh, confused. I'll sort it out in four years' time. Uh, so, Charlie, you, you mentioned a couple of words. You've said celebrate, you've said commemorate in yeah. different contexts. Yeah. And I think in the same vein of the conversation we're having today, yeah. um, when I sit down at every commission meeting, the same conversation comes up, and people are on, seem to be forming two camps. Yeah. Take us through this, commemorate or celebrate. I first wrote about this in volume one about the Civil War, and I, that was, the Civil War um, 150th anniversary. And I would go to a me public meeting and say, we're here to celebrate the American Civil War. And I really objected to that. You, de you celebrate the, the death of 600,000 Americans. How many of you have seen the Vietnam Wall? 
Memorial Wall. Most everybody here. Do you realize if you did one for the American Civil War, as a percentage of today's population, you'd have to stack it up 72 more times. And it alone, just seeing it, but imagine going that high. You don't celebrate the death of a hundred, you know, that, that many people. And um, it's the same with, with um, the American Revolution. There were some very controversial aspects of it, unpleasant aspects of it, particularly the Revolutionary War in the South. And it was a nasty camp war down here. You can't ignore that. It's part of our heritage. It's part of what shaped who we are today. And um, you take it, the big, the bad, and the ugly, and you tell it in a sensitive and fair way based on solid scholarship. And um, the one thing is that the American Revolution, the Revolutionary War, was as much a civil war as it was um, in, in the 1860s. You had people who, who were very loyal and uh, they paid the consequence more so than anybody in the South after the Civil War. So we're commemorating the history, but I would say, and I'd like to know if you agree, it's okay to celebrate the opportunity of this country. Yeah. So it's really commemorating and celebrating, it's both. I sure hope that we have some parades and shoot off some fireworks, yeah. but let's also be realistic about the past and think about those lessons. Is that? Yeah, yeah. And um, it's, it's appropriate to commemorate, commemorate and cel uh, to celebrate the Declaration of Independence, the creation of this infant republic. It's, we should do that. And it's part of what's made this nation great. A world-changing moment that, yeah. Yeah. with big ideas coming from this very commonwealth. So yeah. I agree. Yeah. Well, I'd like to take a moment and open up for questions. Uh, we're going to start right here. Suzanne. Yeah. theory, and a lot of the people who are batting around these, this phrase, I think, have no concept what it is. Could you give us your take on that? Well, and, and let, me, let me repeat that ahead. first. The question um, was about conversations, and we touched a little bit on, on critical race theory as a, as a term, and she's asked for Charlie to, to react to that. Yeah, it's, in a sense, a movement to reverse the way history is taught, has been taught in the past, it's in more or less the history that, that I read in those old textbooks, that there's a race defines much of what the American experience has been. And I don't disagree with that. It's not the only thing. But from 1619 till 1865, really, that race was a prime issue. You look at um, um, the Civil War, it was, it was caused by slavery, which is a race issue. The riots in the 20th century, the Civil Rights Movement, and it's important for us to embrace that part of our history and learn as much as we can to be good citizens. But I know when the high school, we, we learned nothing. It was George Washington Carver and the invention of peanut butter was about it. It's true. I mean, so it's an attempt to, to make the black experience, and not just the black experience, um, presented in a fair and equitable way at least being presented. So, uh, yes. Thank you. And actually, we have a microphone coming down to you. We'll make it a little easier. Thank you. It's a joy to see you today, and I'm so glad you're with us. I, I'd like to ask if you can comment 
on the broad brush of, of American history on how the economics of the moment, as they affect everyday people, affect uh, our politics. And, and I can yeah. give a couple of examples. Uh, I'm old enough to absolutely remember and benefit from the post-World War II yeah. years, where America became a manufacturing giant, yeah. and the middle class rose tremendously. But beginning in the 1990s, American corporations, uh, those who, who uh, buy goods that they then sell uh, to the consumer, began the ship hand over fist, yeah. jobs to China but to other offshore. And suddenly, uh, over the last uh, 10 to 15 years, uh, the attitude uh, of the average day citizen has, in some cases, shifted. They have felt disaffected, and the middle class uh, perhaps is being dampened because of that shift. I consider that sort of an economic impact, and I wonder if you have anything to share with us on, on that. Well, when you think about it, no civilization has had it so good as we have. You think about it in terms of health, education, uh, material uh, um, wealth. We, there's been no nation like ours in relative freedom to act and to speak. And that has been a huge advantage to, uh, for us. It's allowed us to build the largest economy in the world. It's, an, it's enabled us to be victorious in the greatest war of all time. And it's, um, but you're right, the policies, of, we, we cannot ignore the, um, the uh, tax policies in the United States. There's a, an essay in volume one I wrote about the clash of empires. And anybody who's gone to a Caribbean island will see cannons or forts. And that's because it was a great empire that was controlled by the British, the French, and the Spanish. They were constantly lacking of going to war with each other. What made up an empire? An empire is any country that spreads its wealth and fame beyond its borders. It's one that has, influences language, it influences uh, governance, and last, it's one that accumulates a lot of wealth. But no civilization, no, no empire, has been able to last much longer than two, two centuries. They've all collapsed, why? Because they overextended themselves and it eventually collapsed. And I think that's something we must be mindful of and we're not being, uh, the con Congress can't get anything done. And it's not a very equitable uh, economic system that we have. So it, it, that does concern me. Are we eventually spending ourselves out of business? But thank you for that question. Any other questions? We have one in the back and then we'll have one up in the front after that. Charlie, you spent some uh, pages in your book on the story of Jonathan Daniels. Yes. And uh, many people in this room have probably never heard of Jonathan Daniels. But Martin Luther King called him one of the great heroes of the Civil Rights Movement. Yeah. Jonathan Daniels was white. Uh, also a VMI graduate, so we got to put that in there. By the way, I noticed in the paper yesterday you're a graduate of the class of 79. So. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> so Charlie found a way to turn back the clock. <laughs> would, you, would you just... Uh, give the audience here just a few moments on the story of Jonathan Daniels. 
Jonathan Daniel was VMI class in 1961. He came, he was born and raised in New England. But why he decided to come to VMI, I've never quite figured that out. But he did, and he was valedictorian of this class. And he made the statement that we don't know what our future holds for us, but we have an opportunity for greatness. Well, when the civil rights um, movement became very active in, in the deep south, um, particularly with voter registration, he, uh, who had entered Episcopal uh, Seminary in um, Boston, he went down and marched with the uh, uh, civil rights demonstrators and um, was very actively involved. And he was put in jail with several other demonstrators and finally released. He was walking back to his um, place that he was staying with, a young, with some young uh, demonstrators. One, and I can't remember her name, um, came in to get a soft drink from a, grocery, from a country store. And the owner of the store said, you stay out of here. And he didn't. He got a shotgun and was going to shoot the young woman. He stood in front of her and accepted the full blast and was killed instantly. And it was really, he was now uh, elected to the, as a martyr of the, um, in the Episcopal Church and he's honored at Westminster Abbey. It's interesting, you don't think of VMI with somebody like that. There's a Jonathan Daniel Arch, and there's a, his being recognized as a uh, Jonathan Daniel Award for Humanitarian Service. It's somebody that VMI has fortunately adopted and is uh, celebrated, as he should be. Incredible story. Thank you. Pam, did you want to? Um, Charlie. Yes. When we traveled the Lee and Grant exhibit to the New York oh. Historical Society, yeah. do you remember what they called it? They called it Gra Grant and Lee. They, were <laughs> 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 they changed it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Only fair. Well, on that note, I think we will wrap up. Uh, Charlie, this has been a pleasure. And again, I want to thank you all for coming, uh, for your wonderful support as being members of this place. Uh, so we're talking about Imperfect Past, Volume 2, More History in a New Light, written by a legend. Thank you all Thank for being you. here today. And I'm supposed to go out my autograph.